Hello, hello, dear listeners. This is part two of the previous episode. So if you haven't heard that one yet, you should go back and check that one out first. But even as a standalone episode, uh, if you didn't want to go back, I'd say this is a pretty great conversation. Uh, I may be biased, though. (laughs) But uh, just to remind you where we left off last time, we were talking about the incredibly dishonest framing in the media on the issue of Israel and Palestine, the types of tactics and manipulative language that we've been seeing. And more specifically, we were talking about Jesse Brown of the Canada Land podcast, a well-known Canadian media critic, and uh, how he's been having a, um, as my guest called it, a Zionist meltdown. And uh, he also wrote a strange hit piece on Sri Pradkar, a Toronto Star columnist, which we also briefly touched upon last time. So, yeah, that's what we were talking about uh, in the previous episode a little bit, and we will be talking about it some more in this one. So I just thought I would catch you up on that, and uh, yeah, that's where we were at. And folks, um, if you enjoy this show, please do consider supporting the podcast via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes and or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify since um, fashy fuck Elon has basically tanked Twitter, it's been a pretty rough time for smaller lefty content creators. There's a lot less reach and a lot less engagement. Couple that with how unwelcome pro-Palestinian views are in the current mediascape, and it's getting harder and harder to sustain. So yeah, if you can and you enjoy the show, please do consider supporting it and leaving a review. And now, the episode. Welcome to the Polite Conversations podcast, where every episode is focused on civility, decorum, and good manners. And I'm your lovable, non-controversial host, Ina. If you know me, you know I definitely don't like to ruffle any feathers at all. Because anyone criticizes it, they're saying, you're saying that the Jews are controlling politics? You know what I mean? But then it goes back to, no, we're not saying the Jews, we're talking about pro-Israel groups that aren't all Jewish. I mean, the biggest pro-Israel group in the world, if I'm not mistaken, is Christians United for Israel. So the anti-Semites talk about their influence. Um, It's just an intimidation tactic. You saw this too at U of T, right? When uh, Sija had that tax judge, who's a donor to the school, call them up and say, the person you're hiring to run your international human rights program, German uh, international law legal scholar, Valentina Azarova, like, I don't know, you might have some problems if you hire her. And then they they just dropped her. What were the problems that she had? Well, she's actually, her expertise, I believe, is in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And she has expressed criticisms of Israel that are totally mainstream in the ah. international human rights uh, 
community. She had glowing references from uh, at least one Israeli academic who was like, yeah, she's a great scholar. But again, any sort of um, criticism of Israel's narrative that it's just this wee small little bean that just is forced to completely against its will kill thousands of people is deemed um, not just anti-Semitic, but a threat to Jewish people. Again, when it became a big scandal, I believe it was Shri uh, Paradkar who broke that story, though it may have been Sean Fine at the Golden Mail. But again, Sidra was just like, this is like an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. You're saying Jews control academia? And it's just like, no, no, you're the one who's who's who's, and that's frustrating thing with with these pro-Israel organizations is they are nonstop conflating Jewish yes. people and Israel, and then when people buy into that conflation misguidedly, yeah, then it's just like aha, see, right, it's all anti-Semitism. And back to uh, uh, Jesse Brown's attempts to take down of Shri Paradkar, he's talking about trial for Palestine, and then he got hold of a spokesperson. And this is Jesse writing, um, the spokesperson who identified herself as Farah, but did not provide a last name, said they, quote-unquote, 100% stand by their claim that Jews are lying about the events of October 7th. Like, again, this conflation of the Israeli yeah. government with Jewish people is, again, uh, I, I mean, Jesse's doing it, and then he's... Do you think Jesse is saying that they said Jews, or they actually said Jews? No, it's paraphrased. He's he's saying they said Jews. I'm sure they said the Israelis, and he just said... Oh, really? Oh, yeah. my God, that would make it so much worse, because I can completely see the problematic nature of them saying Jews are lying about October 7th. Um, but if they did not say that, that is incredibly fucked up to paraphrase it as that way. If they said Israelis. Yeah. yeah it's just profoundly dishonest. And, and, um, you see it again and again with, you know, again, uh, when, uh, Chapters Indigo was postered <laughs> and had, uh, this... you know, red paint spilled on it. Okay. So. Yeah, Chapters Indigo is like our biggest bookstore chain, massive, massive organization, and the CEO is Jewish, but also started a foundation to recruit and provide scholarships for foreign people to join the IDF. Did I get that all? Yes, that's right. The Hezeg Foundation. It's specifically for lone soldiers. So people who don't even have family in Israel, but for want to fight in the IDF. And so that's made her a target for uh, a protest. And Jesse shares a news story with the caption, Jewish-owned bookstore vandalized. Now that sounds terrible. If someone went to a, like a little mom and pop shop bookstore that has absolutely nothing to do with Israel that is a hundred percent an anti-semitic act but that's not what happened yeah and it's also like it, chapters indigo is a publicly traded company um so it's owned not by Heather Reisman but by its shareholders and uh if he's 
I know he didn't give this much thought, but um, if he's insinuating that all of Chapters Indigo's shareholders are Jewish, or the majority of them is, some would say that that's anti-Semitic. Yeah, I feel like he probably wasn't, you know, saying that. But uh, the 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 dishonest framing of this massive bookstore chain who is getting criticized specifically for recruiting and funding IDF soldiers is, like, targeted because it's a Jewish-owned bookstore. That's not at all the case. It's so frustrating to see that, you know, this guy who calls himself a media critic is fully being this dishonest on this issue. And then I believe someone called him, like, a emoji millionaire or something because apparently yeah, emoji bit strip millionaire because that was actually how he made his money he started candleland with right so he has like he started this bitmoji thing or yeah do you remember he was big for like a second these you know sort of bit strip like these comic strips right, that right, were right. like i guess ai generated and uh you can personalize them and stuff yeah, and he said that that's an anti-Semitic trope. You're saying that uh, Jews have a lot of money, and it's like, no, she's saying right. you have a lot of money. <laughs> See, this is so, it's so crazy that people can do that, because I cannot imagine how much Muslims would be called out for that if they were trying to do that. Like, you know what I mean? It's so crazy to say that you can't say that, you know, he's some bitmoji millionaire because that's an anti-Semitic trope. And then there was a story about the Calgary mayor who was invited to a menorah lighting, which, you know, she was happy to go to, but then she saw the poster for the event and she saw it had, like, you know, support, Israel and like very political messaging which she did not stand by so she declined and said she was misled and then someone said oh yeah the Calgary Herald the paper said implied that she was being anti-semitic because her claim that she was misled goes back to the old anti-semitic trope that Jews are conniving yeah I mean and there was absolutely no trickery involved like it's mind-boggling. It, it is. It is, I, I mean, just wild. And that was actually the president of the Calgary Jewish Federation who was being quoted, uh, you know, uncritically by Calgary Herald columnist Dom Braid, who uh, said that this shows Jody Gondek isn't fit to be mayor. And she's also a person of color. So yeah, I'm seeing that a lot. Uh yeah, I mean, Sohi, too, here in Edmonton, Amarjeet Sohi, who's also Punjabi and um, is, 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 a, is a refugee, I believe. After October 7th, he, I think, issued exactly what mayor of a diverse city should say when something like October 7th happened and everyone knew what was going to come next. He said that there are Jewish Edmontonians, there are Palestinian Edmontonians, and he just wants them to know that they're all in his thoughts. And the Jewish Federation of Edmonton lost their minds. They called it disgusting. And why won't he denounce Hamas, right? And then he issued a clarifying statement just adding, like, yes, Hamas's terrorist attack was horrible, but same message intact. And they said, well, that's not good enough. This yeah. is still awful. I mean, he's creating moral equivalence between Israel's righteous efforts to defend itself 
and, you know, Hamas uh, raping and killing babies, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just so perverse. But it is good to see some politicians push back against it in the ways that they feel able to. And um, in Calgary, I I know Jen Gerson, um, who runs this website called The Line. She's like a former National Post columnist who started this exciting, fresh, new, edgy uh, publication on Substack called The Line, which, if you read it, is just the same drivel you read on the op-ed pages (laughs) and all of Kansas newspapers, but uh, she swears, and, and, and it's longer. And she was just going to town about how irresponsible this was of Gondak. She talked about the event's poster and how it had, like all these children's activities and saying, oh, wow, yeah, that screams pro-war rally. And it's like, well, what about the big, bold letters in the middle that say supporting Israel? Um, but it, again, it's just pure bad faith. And I mean, in Gerson's case, it's just pure clout chasing, in my opinion, just getting clicks off of like the right-wing anger machine. In Jesse's case, I think there, you know, there is a deep-seated uh, historical trauma I can very much relate to right. and empathize with. But at a certain point, when you see just the horrors coming out of Gaza, yeah, my sympathy um, really um, ru- runs dry. Um, and you know, I, I, I think for me, what. Well, a couple things, but, uh, you know, Jesse decided to release this audio essay, I think he called it an op-ed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I heard that. That um, was titled, Is Jesse Brown a Zionist? And it's like, well, obviously he's fucking <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and I didn't listen to it because life is short and I know what he thinks on this issue. I've seen enough of his tweets. I don't think he, if he, he said anything interesting on this issue, I, uh, I've yet to hear it. But it was basically like accusing people of demanding to know like what kind of Jew he is. And uh, he was like, well, I, I'm not going to tell you or something like that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that, that sounds, and I just, the reason I didn't listen to it um was because I read the description and it was like, people are telling Jesse, you need to stop talking about anti-Semitism. And it's like, I mean, I guess probably there are some people uh, on Twitter saying that, but I'm not saying you should stop talking about anti-Semitism. No, I'm saying yeah. you should stop talking about anti-Semitism in a profoundly damaging and dishonest fashion that only dilutes the seriousness of uh, anti-Semitism in the diaspora in doing so in a way that is clearly designed to distract people from what's happening in Gaza. And like the ADL has um, very kindly demonstrated how these two things can be so separate in the way that when Elon Musk publicized this, agreeing with this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that was like, you know, great replacement. Like, that kind of ideology has been spouted by people who shot up synagogues. So, so dangerous. And here's Elon Musk boosting that and uh, giving it legitimacy. Then the ADL 
the very next day decides to praise Elon because he also said that any talk of decolonization or from the river to the sea will be banned because it's an incitement to genocide or some some bullshit like that. It just shows how hollow and empty their concerns for actual anti-Semitism are. If you're willing to overlook that when someone as powerful and influential as Elon can endorse an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and the next day you praise him because he also is going to be banning criticism of Israel. Yeah, and I mean, there's been a lot of uh, internal dissent at the ADL about that. Right. I saw that today. Yeah. That someone quit. Yeah, that, that that's actually the latest. Uh, I know Jewish Currents, uh, which is a great left-wing Jewish publication, yeah, has yeah. been uh, really doing some great work before and after uh, October 7th on holding the sort of mainstream Jewish establishment in the United States um, to account. But speaking of which, there's also been internal um, um, dissent at Candleland. Right. Um, Their union put out a statement. Yeah, and I thought it was a very measured statement. Um, You know, I know people who work at Candleland. Again, as I said, there are a lot of great journalists and people who work there. And, you know, the newsroom, I I don't think it'll surprise anyone to know, has been tense. Mm. While Jesse's been just on this terror, just like slandering people as anti-Semitic and mostly people of color, by the way, which as you've noted is a pattern. Mm-hmm. It was that Shri Pardkar uh, hit piece. That was really the sort of straw that broke the camel's back, I think. And, and so the union issued a statement uh, pointing out what I think many people, including myself, were pointing out that Jesse is doing immense damage to Candleland's credibility. Yeah. Through this crusade he's on, this disingenuous crusade against anti-Semitism that's actually about silencing criticism of Israel. Of course, all the fucking usual suspects in Canadian media like Robin Urbach and Jen Gerson and um, Matt Gurney, who's Gerson's co-editor of the line, um, were, were all like, how could the union do this? I mean, they're, uh, why don't they put their names to it? You, and it's like, you've never been in a union in your life, clearly, um, <laughs> which is true. But uh, why are they attacking their Jew? Right, they're literally doing like... Yeah, media networks, Jewish owner attacked by his employees, right? And never mind that there are people who work at Candleland who are Jewish who don't agree with Jesse, right? right? Because it was revealing, and it was like, okay, we know exactly which side of the picket line these people would be on. But it it was good to see. I wonder what it's going to actually result in in practice, but uh, I think it was good for the entire Candleland workforce to be like, yes, Jesse has been damaging our credibility and this hit piece on Sri Pardkar is like gone way too far and he needs to rebuild trust with us and the audience and you know, we're willing to rebuild trust with him too if he's you know, willing to take steps. So, I, I mean, we'll see what happens uh, on that front, I think the most disingenuous Jesse post that I saw was probably his exchange with Jeet here. Oh, I was just going to mention that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
because it's just so like it was just the laziest like um because g um i think uh rightly also a person of color yeah well he rightly pointed out that there's a time reporting on how journalist isam abdallah was killed by the idf in lebanon as a media critic this and the really unprecedented killing of journalists by the idf is worth talking about will you discuss Jesse's response was, thanks for this question on this Hanukkah night, Jeet. But it's a curious one. Given that I cover Canadian media and as such don't talk on Candleland about the killing of journalists in Mexico, Ukraine, etc. What about me makes you expect me to cover it when it happens in Israel? Um, and so, like, there's a lot to unpack uh, in that response. First of all, <laughs> there's no prohibition on asking Jewish people questions on Hanukkah. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's first one. Uh, second of all, what is it about me that makes you expect me to cover it when it happens in Israel? You're posting, Jesse. It's your posting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally the fact that your entire contribution to this issue has been centering yourself in talking about how unsafe you feel as a Jew because of Palestinian activism, right? And the actual incidents of anti-Semitism that he has amplified, and justifiably so, we don't know who did it. I mean, it's Montreal. I mean, there's a lot of anti-Semitism among Francophones in, in Quebec that has nothing to do with with the the situation in Israel and Palestine. Well, and we're also seeing like some white nationalists rebrand as anti-war or pro-Palestine and uh, you know, yeah, fuel like Jackson Henkel or like this account called Stop Zionist oh, Hate. Oh, Stop Zionist Hate. Yeah. yeah, I oh man, when I see people retweet that, oh I'm god, like, it's so frustrating. Yeah, and I know that the people amplifying them don't realize what it is, yeah. but that was their intent. Yeah, exactly. But anyways, G points out to him that he's talked about the press situation in Ukraine. Um, surely there are Canadian journalists willing to talk about the press situation in Gaza. And then Jesse says, <laughs> I think you might want to pause and reflect for a minute on why you are directing these questions to me. I suggest it's because I am a Jew who has been vocal about anti-Semitism in Canada, and you are conducting a purity test. Yeah, and he also said that both the journalists he interviewed about uh, Ukraine are Canadian. But, like, it's not like you cannot find Canadian journalists to talk about the killing of Palestinians right now. I'm sure you can find someone that is Canadian. Yeah, it's, it's just he doesn't He could talk to you. He could, yeah. I, I mean, I've been on shortcuts before I, I i found him to be a very gracious host and i thought we had a good co- it, it was actually about like the ukrainian nationalist stuff we talked about uh at the beginning which is something i think him and i agree on but um yeah i fucking talked to him about israel i know lots of left-wing jews would, would would talk to him if he's scared of talking to uh you know palestinian person <laughs> um, and then g points out that um, his podcast is an outlet for media criticism and that it's curious that one of the major media stories of our time, the fact that so many journalists are being killed by a Canadian ally, 
isn't seen as part of its pure view. And I think Jeet nails it when he says, identity politics deflection is boring. Yeah. And then Jesse says, you misremembered my post about Jews as posts about Israel. What's that about Jeet? Can't you tell the difference? Which is like so fucking disingenuous <laughs> coming from Jesse, who has been constantly conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Well, being too much of a chicken shit to just come out and say that's what he's doing. Right. If you want to do it honestly and openly, then then say that. Yeah. Just hiding behind, no, what do you mean? I'm just talking about Jews. And... And then yeah. the Starbucks then, thing, right? Like, he said the, the Starbucks that was, what was it, like, targeted by protesters because they they support genocide. But then he said that... Yeah, yeah, the, the Starbucks thing, too. It, it, this is interesting, too, because it's a sort of connection between uh, Starbucks, like, anti-labor practices and its pro-Israel uh, orientation, because I believe they filed a trademark suit against their union because they used the Starbucks logo in a pro-Palestinian statement. Oh, and wow. so Starbucks has been target for uh, boycotts. Now, this particular Starbucks was in a neighborhood that has a lot of Jewish people in it, so it might have been ill-advised, but again, he's constantly comparing these um, protests against businesses yeah. to Kristallnacht. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I feel like... It, I don't know if it's fair to like say that this Starbucks was targeted specifically because it's in this neighborhood when, I mean, I don't know if we can know that when Starbucks is targeted for a lot of legitimate reasons, you know what I mean? Like, they're they're being protested because of their, like, yeah, you're, you're right. It, it's not the best uh, location for them to do it, but it's not like that Starbucks was like the Jewish Starbucks or something, (laughs) you know? Yeah, no, exactly. And like it's Starbucks. Yeah. Right. Like, Like, exactly. It's It's, a corporation. Yeah. And using this corporation to, as a stand in for Jewish people, um, is, is wild. And, um, in comparing all these protests to Kristallnacht, these protests in support of Palestine to Kristallnacht, well. And BDS. He's like, how can the BDS movement not know about Kristallnacht? It's like. And it's like, well, if that, if that makes it, um, if that makes it Kristallnacht, then what does settler violence in the West Bank? What what is that? Right, or them like you know targeting Palestinian stores, and even now there's videos of like IDF soldiers like just trashing little gift shops and things. Yeah, and and, and so while I don't want to, um. I really don't want to be in the position of dismissing concerns about anti-Semitism. Yes, yes, yes. But yes. the way this discourse has manifested itself, I, I, I mean, leaves people of conscience no choice but to say, yes, anti-Semitism needs to be condemned, but it also needs to be discussed in a, 
in in honest in rational way and then the counterpoint that um these propagandists always make is oh you're telling Jews how to talk about anti-Semitism? Like, oh, you need to listen to Jewish perspectives. And then people listen to a Jewish perspective that they agree with. And it's like, no, 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 not that perspective, <laughs> only ours. And it's like, okay, so you don't want people to listen to Jews. You want them to listen to the most extreme supporters of Israel and their uh, flunkies. Right. And this Kristallnacht discussion reminded me of... I don't know if you heard it yet in the last episode, if you finished the whole thing, but, like, Eric Weinstein uh, did this rant, like, in early COVID days uh, after the George oh, Floyd yeah, yeah, yeah. protests, and he was like, uh, you know, with the sound of broken glass, every Jew will think of Kristallnacht, and why do black people think they can monopolize this issue of police brutality. Like, he was doing some really weird shit there. Like, he was like, if you think racism and slavery is a problem, then how can you tell me as a Jew that the Holocaust is not a problem? It's like, who is doing that? Who is trying to pit these issues against each other? And who is minimizing the Holocaust because, uh, people are talking about George Floyd. Like, that's not something I've seen. Well, it's, I think, uh, it's something that you could call um, the oppression Olympics. <laughs> right, which I these mean, guys love to talk about otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they love to talk about it, but it, again, they're its biggest proponents, just like when it comes to uh, cancel culture. It's all they fucking talk about, except when they are actively promoting it. And then it's not cancel culture, it's actually ensuring uh, Jewish people are uh, safely insulated from hearing perspectives on Israel that aren't their own, even though many Jewish people hold those views in increasing numbers. Right. I cannot imagine like what that must feel like for a Jewish person that is critical to be like in this environment of constant silencing. And like I, I try to think of like if people tried to tell me that criticism of Saudi Arabia was anti-Muslim, it would drive me nuts and it would only make me want to criticize it more. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that's where I'm at. I, you know, I, I, I've been as vocal about this issue as I have at this time, because I know like now's not the time to just like hang my head and be quiet and just focus on anything else. Like more than at any time in, in, in my lifetime, it's the time to speak out uh, about what's, what's being done in, in, in my name, but not just in my name. I mean, you know, the, 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 you talk a lot about these discourses around Western civilization, right? And, and, and I mean, right. Netanyahu saying that explicitly, like this is we're we are protecting civilization from barbarism yeah. and, and, and yeah. um, those who find that rhetoric troubling when it's used at home, by far-right forces need to identify it and criticize it when it's being done with bombs that are uh, supported by Canada or in the United States, of course. Right. 
It's been a truly, truly bizarre time to witness. Uh, like, just... I cannot remember ever seeing things being twisted, like, right before our very eyes. Like, to this extent. And then there was the uh, Friends of the Weisenthal Center? Friends of the Simon Weisenthal Center. So they're, they're, they're the Canadian... Uh, equivalent, essentially, of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in the U.S., which is a nonprofit dedicated to Holocaust education, but uh, seems to lean heavily on the uh, pro-Israel uh, agitation um, side of the ledger, which, of course, um, undermines its very important work of uh, teaching people about the Holocaust and uh, right. how these things happen. Right. And they also state that they, you know, they want to combat anti-Semitism and hate in all its forms. But then you shared this story on CBC where the CEO was instructing Holocaust educators in schools to basically report any pro-Palestinian students to the schools and say that the school has like an anti-Semitism problem. Yeah, exactly, in that they need more uh, education from Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center to combat this anti-Semitism. And the head of, of, of the Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center is a former liberal MP, uh, Michael Levitt, who anytime uh, the Trudeau government would even hint at being mildly critical of Israel, which is almost never... Uh, when he, when he yeah. was an MP, he would issue a statement being uh, outraged that the government he's a part of would, you know, single out Israel for criticism or, you know, whatever um, his Rolodex of talking points uh, uh, told him. Um, really, uh, um, really bad guy, I, I, I think. And, um, re- and again, because friends of Simon Weisenthal, I mean, they have... I mean, again, the, 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 it's Holocaust educators went to um, the CBC reporter, Brishti Basu, who's been doing great work on this issue and um, become a, a target by pro-Israel uh, forces as a result. Another person of color? Yeah. Hmm. Really <laughs> huh. makes you wonder. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I'm reading from the screenshot that you shared of the article. So, CBC has agreed to keep the employees' names confidential because of a potential risk to their employment. Comments or questions referencing genocide or occupation of Palestinian people and, and this is the really scary part, anything seen as critical of Israel at all are to be reported to the organization. The idea is to contact the school, inform the school they have an anti-Semitism problem, and pressure the school to shut down the Palestinian support by accusing them of anti-Semitism, encouraging more pro-Zionist workshops or lessons. I mean, this is like straight-up Orwellian. Yeah, I I mean, it's McCarthyism, right? It's so thinly veiled. And you see also Anthony Housefather, who is the other uh, liberal MP, who, um, you know, and there were a few who were 
outraged that the Liberals uh, voted for a ceasefire at the UN um, because the resolution didn't condemn Hamas. Well, the resolution didn't condemn Israel either, but um, uh, Anthony Housefather is now said he saw what uh, Elise Stefanik did in the States with the presidents of those Ivy League right. schools. And he, he wrote a letter signed by uh, several other uh, MPs saying, yeah, I want to do this here. I want every the head of every university to write back to me telling me whether calling for genocide of Jews violates its codes of conduct. And if they don't, we're going to force them to testify in front of parliament. I mean, just, again, this is like, like it's like this guy learned about McCarthyism and was like, well, you know, he had some good points. He had some good tactics. I, I, <laughs> and, and, you know, and it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Because, I mean, if you watch it, the, the video in, in, you know, in the States, I mean, first of all, at least Fang is a MAGA Chud, yeah, who like believes in the great replacement and that George Soros is behind it. And here she is saying that she is standing against anti Semitism on university campuses, saying that calling for an intifada is calling for the genocide of Jews, which is like, yeah, like it's one thing to say it's calling for violence, which is also not true, but yeah. it at least has a closer resemblance towards truth than saying it calls for genocide. Like, genocide? Like, I, I, I mean, if the intifadas were genocide against Jews, then were, were they towards Palestinians, where, where more people were killed in, in, in both instances? And, and the first intifada was mostly nonviolent, right? And the second intifada was definitely bloodier, um, you know, there were suicide bombings, there were there, there were gun battles, but there was also uh, resistance isn't only violent. It's just when people, their only understanding of Palestinians is people who just sit around all day want, scheming on how they're going to kill Jews, then of course any anything but pure submission is seen as a threat. But, uh, you know, both intifadas, uh, you know, I mean, there were strikes and, uh, you know, massive peaceful demonstrations and all, all sorts of completely legitimate nonviolent ac- activities that uh, occurred. And, uh, and then, yeah, of course, calling from the river to the sea is now saying that you want to kill all the Jews. It's, it's just like, what, which part of that? Like, it's calling for a single state, but the Israelis support a single state and that's not genocidal while they're like invading hospitals and, and blowing up ambulances and bakeries and fishing boats and blood banks. But, you know, of course, in all genocides, there is this, when you're committing genocide, there is this sense of being victimized by the group you're targeting for, for um, you know, extermination or ethnic cleansing. And so um, it does kind of come with the territory. Um, but I think what's especially troubling is to see so few voices in the mainstream able to or willing to push back against this this systematic deception, this inversion of reality. Right. Yeah, that's uh, really well put. I wonder how long it can last. Like, how much longer 
Can they keep bombing innocent people and claiming they're the ones that are being harmed? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, October 7th obviously gave them the pretext that the the Israeli government has been looking for to just wipe out Gaza. And if they're successful in Gaza, they're they're going to do it in the West Bank next. Yeah. And and for whatever reason, uh, it seems like there's a lot more, like, liberal sympathy with Palestinians in the West Bank than with those in Gaza. Is it because Hamas is not in power there? Yeah, I think it's that in that there's settler violence. The settler violence, right, is like totally uh, indefensible. Like, you have to be a real, like, hardcore uh, reactionary bigot to be like, yeah, no, settler. Like, because even, even like, Sam Harris, right, is like, oh, yeah, set, settler <laughs> violence. I, I don't approve of it. And, um, of course, it only matters if it's religiously motivated, right? So, uh, oh, yeah, 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 of course. And so I think if Israel does sort of, because, I mean, it's already happening, uh, you know, at a much slower pace than what's happening in Gaza, but settlers have destroyed, like, more yeah. than a dozen. Uh, but they've they've picked up the pace since October. Oh, 7th, yeah. Like, quite I, I mean, a bit. Yeah. I mean, for sure, because that's the thing. The settlers are always encroaching on Palestinian territory in, in, in the in the West Bank, and probably soon in northern Gaza, it, it looks like, once it's just completely destroyed, and they'll build some, you know, beachfront resort for, uh, you know, tourists. But, yeah, I, I, you know, I wonder, like, like, because part of me is 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 very, you know, I think it's like an optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect type of approach. Where part of me says, uh, yeah, I mean, how how much longer can, can can this go on with Israel just getting unconditional support from the United States and in its various institutions and in Canada and the UK and all the European countries. Um, But then another part of me is like, well, if the US had any intention of putting a stop to it or limiting its complicity in this, it would have probably done so, you know, maybe around the time they hit 10,000 dead, 20,000. So, I mean, again, yeah. there's no there's no upper limit for um, Israel's uh, most fervent supporters as to how many Palestinians can die, because no matter how many Palestinians die, it's never Israel's fault. It's always, right? It's this, you know, stop hitting yourself routine uh, Israel does with the Palestinians. Yeah. That, again, I think October 7th did perhaps set back the shift towards uh, sympathizing with the Palestinians to, to some extent. But, yeah, I think since then, Israel has set back its own cause to an even greater extent um, because, you know, I mean, every day it just pounds Gaza and deliberately attacks its civilian infrastructure and, and openly boasts of plans to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians in Gaza. I, I mean, first of all, it shows Palestinians that violent resistance is the only way in that we need to do to the Israelis what they're doing to us. 
Right. It's it's really awful because even the even things like BDS are criminalized, you know? Right. Like Well that any kind of resistance that is any kind of resistance is just not acceptable. Yeah, literally. There isn't one. There, there there's no form of Palestinian resistance or even assertions of their existence that Israel yes. and its supporters will accept. Well, did you see that watermelon emoji, um, you know, has a history with the Palestinian yeah. flag being banned. And so Palestinians use the watermelon as a symbol of their flag. But now there are some like Zionist accounts on Twitter that are like trying to do the same thing with the watermelon, but like, yeah, it's anti-black. What's that? I don't know. Oh, you haven't. I think Richie, probably Richie turns because he's just a shameless. Oh, are they talking about it from like a racial stereotype? Kind yeah, of? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, I hadn't seen that being used yet. But I'm talking about they've taken the watermelon emoji and put a star of David on it, and talked about how amazing Israeli watermelons are. So, like, even the use of a watermelon emoji has just not been acceptable and that has to be like israeli also yeah i mean it's just it's just so bleak yeah you shared this other post of a headline that said where where is this from is it from the national post yes it is okay Canadian university teacher facing firing for daring to denounce Hamas. I mean, my God, that sounds awful, right? Like, imagine the poor guy just said Hamas is bad and he, he's now facing firing. But the, you read on, as you said in your tweet, after nine paragraphs, the reader is informed that Finlayson, I guess that's the teacher, said a lot more than I stand with Israel. And so what he said is, if you say from the river to the sea, you're a Nazi. I am not neutral. I stand with Israel. I stand against anti-Semites who want nothing but dead Jews, who take millions from their education and healthcare budgets and spend it on making war. Israel has a full right to their land. You stand with Palestine means you stand with Hitler. You don't want peace. You want dead Jews. I mean, whoa. Yeah, and, and it gets it gets even worse, right? Just pure dehumanization, right? He says, just like Palestinians, you freely admit this to pollsters. They murdered 1,400 innocents and took 250 hostages, and the people celebrated rapist monsters as heroes. They want a barbaric, primitive Islamic caliphate and hate all post-Enlightenment values. They murder their own people for being gay, and you stand with them. Disgusting. Move there. Um, so that isn't expressing a political view, which, by the way, I, I have on good authority that academics at Guelph Humber aren't allowed to comment on, on this topic publicly at all. So right there. Which sucks in itself, but yeah. Yeah, which is wrong, and I oppose that. But this is beyond that. It's one thing to say, yeah, you know, I support what Israel's doing. I think Hamas are just like ISIS, blah, blah, blah. Like, obviously, it's wrong, but whatever, academic freedom. But this is abusive. 
Yeah. And I did want to highlight, and I think you talked about this a bit in your talking about Harris and Weinstein episode, is that Hamas are very different from from ISIS. I mean, they are a conservative, uh, theocratic movement. And I I, I don't want this to be interpreted as a a defense of Hamas, but they have cracked down on Salafi jihadi movements in Gaza. Right. Right. I, I mean, there's an ISIS cell in Gaza, right. like probably like a decade ago, and they got rid of it, you know. And so um, this this conflation of any sort of Islamist governance with this international effort to create this this caliphate is just totally uh, out of step with with the reality where there are different. Like, look, I don't support any um, theocratic movements, <laughs> to be clear. But nonetheless, there are different gradations within them, right? Like, Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, though they've distanced themselves from it in recent years. And the Muslim Brotherhood, right. on the scale of, like, Islamist movements, is on the liberal end, right? Like, they embrace, like, elections. <laughs> right. And, and, I mean, Hamas hasn't imposed Sharia law on Gaza which is what its Salafist opponents want it to do. Right. And this idea that, you know, they kill their citizens for being gay. I mean, I've been seeing more queer Palestinians speaking out about how they were more terrified of being killed by Israel. And they had these, like, underground queer parties in their neighborhoods in Palestine. So, like... I read an excerpt from a book, I can't remember which, but about how an IDF soldier saw through, like, the viewfinder of his gun, like, two Palestinian men having sex, and then he just shot one because he thought it was funny. And, And gay marriage is not even legal in Israel, so, like... How? How do you make these claims? Well, and also, like, surveilling gay Palestinians and threatening to out them unless they snitch on Hamas, right? And as we've seen, Hamas is basically anyone, right? Yeah. Just anyone. Yeah, literally. Anyone. um, Because, yeah, I mean, there's nothing to do with being, you know, a senior commander or what have you, or even like an active militant. It's like literally anyone who has expressed sympathy for resistance, which is really uh, Hamas's main appeal towards Palestinians. It's not that they're Islamist. I mean, their their founding charter is a cartoonishly anti-Semitic document. Of course. Like cartoonishly, like it was actually like... (laughs) Like, I thought it was just, uh, you know, Israel's supporters um, exaggerating. But no, he is no, really, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it was also made 35 years ago, and they've since, as the movement has grown in support, have stopped using that language. And as I distinctly remember you noting, because it, I, I was yes. nodding along, um, that doesn't mean they were genuine in doing so. But, it, it yeah. again, when Israel's supporters say that Hamas is openly wants to get rid of all the Jews in historic Palestine. That's not true. They don't openly want to do it anymore. Yeah, that's Israeli uh, cabinet yeah. <laughs> members. Yeah, they do openly uh, uh, want to. And uh, right. um, what I find especially troubling is this tendency to 
and this is tied to equating Hamas with ISIS or saying it's worse because, uh, you know, they beheaded babies, even though they didn't, um, is saying that Hamas are worse than the Nazis. I, have you been seeing that? Oh, that is such a ridiculous talking point. Like, is, is disgu- like Robin Urbach said, at least the Nazis. And it's like, you start your sentence with at least the Nazis. Oh, you yeah. should shut no, the fuck up. You do not got to yeah. hand it to and, the Nazis. You should not. And the fact that, again, these people all have op-ed columns in Canadian newspapers where no one's allowed to uh, debunk their bullshit. It's revisionism, too. It's like Holocaust revisionism to minimize the harmfulness and evilness of the Nazis. Yeah, and it's like the Nazis tried to hide what they were doing, but the Palestinians, like, broadcasted, or, sorry, Hamas, which... Of course, when they say I'm Muslim, I mean Palestinians are broadcasting yeah. it to the world. And it's like, wow, that's crazy. It's almost as if social media in the political dynamics it creates of <laughs> radicalization didn't exist in the 1930s. Right. And I mean, to talk about social media and broadcasting, like you don't only have to look at the IDF social media posts and their telegram channels and their TikToks and just like just horrendous, horrendous videos that they post themselves. Like that one where they think it's really funny to go and knock on a door and then the camera pans out and you see that it's just rubble and all that's left standing is a door and they think that's like this hilarious joke. And it's like, why would you film yourselves and then post it for everyone to see how awful you are? And like, Right, and, and that's, I mean, uh, another concern of mine, of what, what, once this is all over, and it's not, you know, my main concern is putting an end to the, the, these horrific crimes that are, are being conducted by Israel in Gaza. Um, and now is, I mean, how, part of me is, how can you expect Palestinians to want to live alongside the, the, these people who are, again, just are so consumed by this hatred of them, right? I mean, there does, I, I mean, ultimately... And look, I you know I have family in Israel, and even if I didn't, like Israeli Jews, I am firm in in my belief have a right to live in historic Palestine, right? Because I think anyone has a right to live anywhere they want. Well, I mean, if they're living there, like it would just be awful to uproot someone and remove them from. Like, yeah, I don't see yeah. how that's a solution at all. It's like Canada. Right there, there needs to be a form of reconciliation. Right, but I mean, just with the the brutality we've been seeing, how is that even possible? Yeah, you know, and and for 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 Palestinians, and that sort of also keeps me up at night a bit too. Is just, um, you know, I mean, Archbishop Tutu, you know, said that you know this this occupation is worse than apartheid. It's not just bad for the Palestinians who are being constantly surveilled and harassed and having their movements controlled, but it also, like, corrodes the occupier's soul, you know? Yeah. And, of course, they call him an anti-Semite for that. <laughs> but, um, but he, I mean, it's true. You know, I do, I do have concerns, and they're not my most immediate concerns at the moment, but, I, I, I mean, once uh, Palestinians are free, and, and I, I do think it could happen in our lifetime, 
what's going to happen with the Israelis? Like, I do think that this the genocidal assault on Gaza, you know, changes the possibility of two people living together in peace, whether it's a two-state solution or one-state solution or a binational confederation or a series of, like, independent fiefdoms. But uh, again, that that isn't, I, I don't think, should be our number one concern right now when we're seeing what's happening in Gaza. Right, right. So have, have you been to Israel? Have you done this uh, birthright trip? I, I actually, I didn't do the birthright trip. Uh, because I had been to Israel with my family prior, I, we actually went in the summer of 2000. So like a month, we left like a month before the Intifada broke out. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was just like, I was in like heaven. I thought it was so, and it really, you know, and then when, cause I have been to Israel since then with a more, you know, uh, critical perspective. I, I went to, um, the occupied West Bank in 20, oh, wow. or okay. 2012, I think. But yeah, it was just amazing. It, I mean, it is as a Jewish person. I mean, you land at the airport in there and of course it's built on top of a, uh, ethnically cleansed Palestinian village. But I, I mean, as a Jewish person, you go, and you see all these signs in Hebrew and all these, you know, Orthodox Jewish street vendors and it is very welcoming when you're a Jewish person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I remember a few things that in retrospect I thought were like really fucked up. The first is actually the the like how openly racist people were towards not Palestinians, because again, that issue wasn't on my radar. I was just like, yeah, Arabs hate Jews, like, just right. like... But it was how racist um, people were towards Yemeni Jews, oh, I remember. okay. And then you go and you read the history of um, Yemeni Jews immigrating to Israel, and I mean, they essentially had a 60s scoop for, for, for Yemeni Jews, where they were placed with uh, European Jewish households to teach them, uh, you know, Hebrew. Um, and so they could unlearn their oh, sort of wow. backwards Arabic cultural ways. Yeah. And, and not a lot of people know about this. It's called the Yemeni Children Affair, I believe. But I, I thought that was strange. And then it was also, um, we were on like a, a tour right we we were on like sort of like uh you know like a we had like a tour bus that drove us around to all the big cities and a tour guide and i remember the tour guide was pointing out to us the palestinian license plates on on, on the highway which at the time right before the intifada palestinians could use if they got like the right permits from the israelis too and which i'm sure are not easy to get but or were not easy to get. No, no. I And I'm sure you might have to, you know, give up some intelligence to get them. Oh, gosh. And him, I remember our tour guide saying that, you know, about how, like, you know, Palestine doesn't exist. And he's like, you know, they don't. They don't have a P in Arabic. They they call them, they call it Palestine. So they claim to be um, this identity, but they can't even pronounce it. <laughs> As if people don't have their own names for their countries yeah. and cultures. Like, Yeah. 
And then it's funny, too, because then you hear the Zionist talking point that Palestine is actually just a name the, the Romans gave to the territory after they uh, destroyed the, the temple. And again, as if that is like some sort of uh, coherent argument and not just a racist attempt to cast the uh, colonized as being colonizers, right? Right. Um, in, in their, you know, refugee camps. And then one other thing from that tour, and I've really, I only reflected on this very recently, was I was nine years old, almost 10, almost 10. And as part of our tour, we went to a gun range. Oh. And my, I, I fired a gun Yikes. for the first time in my life. Oh, wow, and, yeah. Uh, w- was the last time in my life until, uh, I think, last year when my friend from Toronto visited me in Edmonton. And I was like, you know, it's very Edmonton. I'm going to take you to <laughs> the gun range at the West Edmonton Mall. And uh, I think my, my view on guns uh, from the left is like somewhat heterodox, but in retrospect, I thought that was so fucked up, especially when we're 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 shown these images of Palestinian children, you know, at Hamas schools, you know, uh, right. holding guns and yeah. talking about how they want to be martyrs, and it's like I didn't even live in Israel. I had no reason to know how to shoot a gun, and they just took me there, and and you know allowed a nine-year-old to fire a gun and i didn't really think anything of it until i was older in certain uh instances like the gun range not until like the past year or two but i think that that's an experience you know many uh jews of my generation have where you know we we have intergenerational trauma from the holocaust too but it's not severe and frankly blinding as it is among our, our our parents' generation, and not to mention their parents' generation, which was like you right. know, they were right in the thick of it. Right. Um, and I think that the more time that passes between the Holocaust and now, and the less defensible um, Israel, and, and the more closely Israel comes to represent the Nazis that the state was ostensibly created to prevent. Like, never again. Yes. Yeah. That has been fucking with so many people's minds, I'm sure. Like, how do you even begin to voice that comparison? Or, like, you know, but, like, every day you see images and you're like, this is horrifying and also familiar, but how can how can that be, considering how... It's like, it's very weird to even try to grapple with the rounding up of Palestinians and tagging them with numbers and right, just like driving them into concentrated areas and the open genocidal calls from like politicians and... Right, and I think that, you know, uh, there are two like distinct currents of Jewish thought in relation to the Holocaust that I think exist on the spectrum, right? It's not it's not black and white. It's not you're either one or the other. But the first is that in the wake of the Holocaust, it was like, we need to ensure that this never happens again to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to be constantly 
vigilant against the prospect or the signs of uh, another um, Holocaust happening to us specifically. Then there's the other side, which is that we need to ensure that the Holocaust or something like the Holocaust never happens again to anyone. Right. And again, I think you're seeing this this increasing polarization between these two perspectives on a generational uh, scale. And, you know, I I always struggle with this, you know, when I'm talking about Palestine, because, you know, you don't want to center Jewish perspectives on Zionism, because what Zionism is, is ultimately what it's done to to its victims, the Palestinians, mm-hmm. not to mention, you know, Lebanese or, or even uh, right. Yemeni Jews, right? Um, right. But it, I find it, because the Jewish experience is so weaponized as a means of of, of justifying Israel's conduct that it almost becomes necessary for Jewish people who are speaking out against it to say, no, not in my name, right? It's hard because I do want to also, and and, you know, for the longest time, when I first started reading critically on this topic, right, I mentioned Chomsky, right, like hours ago, and that was sort of my gateway into, you know, uh, more critical, and you know, Norman Finkelstein, who's, you know, kind of gone off the rails. uh, Right. Though he was always half off the rails, and also now that he's going back to talking about things he actually knows about, you know, I, um, I have time for him, but but Isra- you know Israeli historians like uh, Avi Shlaim and Ilan Pape right, and, right. and Simcha Flapin and you know other diaspora Jews who have uh, you know spoken out about Israel like uh, you know Naomi Klein or dating back to IF Stone and and I think that is a good like starting point just because this narrative that you're either with us or you're with the anti-Semitic mob is so prevalent that it's like, well, hold on. It's not that clear cut. Right. But uh, you know, in recent years, I, I, I've realized why well, I, I should really read more, uh, uh, you know, Palestinian perspectives. Cause in many cases, I mean, Palestinian scholars have been saying right, yeah. what was happening to them long before Israelis and Jews were. Right. Yeah, and just like personally seeing how much distortion and gaslighting there has been around this issue just now, like people are beginning to experience it themselves. And I can only imagine what Palestinians have been experiencing for decades on this issue. And yet so many of us just didn't hear how severe it was because firstly a lot of them were silenced and then there was this like kind of cloud of this is anti-semitic and then so people wouldn't want to touch it and now things are becoming a little more clear and uh you know i think there have been like left-wing jewish voices that are like super important in this on this uh, issue because they can push back more strongly than anyone else can, I think. Yeah, certainly. I mean, not that I don't get, uh, you know, accused of, uh, you know, Jewish self-hatred or being right. uh, a, a capo or whatever, but it's pretty easy to ignore that. Right. Right. Because it's like, 
you know, if they had a sound argument, then they would uh, say it right. You know, it basically, I can I can take the heat. It may not have the same impact on you as it would, like, say, on a person of color who's writing an article, right? right. Because and who's who's not Palestinian, so they don't have like an entire supportive community right. Right. to fall back on. Um, and but you know, I mean, I think seeing the proliferation of these groups like Jewish Voice for Peace and Independent Jewish Voices, and if not mm-hmm. now, have really been, I think, uh, a, a very... To seeing their prominence at this time... It's been great. It has been great, and it also has... Because it, it, it can feel alienating going up against the sort of mainstream voices of your community who purport... Yeah. Oh, I know the feeling. ...to speak on your behalf. Oh, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. I, I do think a lot of ways that we can sort of uh, relate, um, right? You're critical of political Islam, right? And right. as you should be. But you're also sensitive towards how that morph so quickly into like anti-muslim bigotry um of, of course the the power dynamics at play are are like very different but but yeah we can definitely relate but you know what's strange and even more alienating being in you know i don't want to compare but like to illustrate what's happening with ex-muslims is that if these groups that you are finding so comforting right now imagine if they teamed up with like nick fuentes to justify his anti-semitism like they were so mad at israel understandably but they channeled that into like legit alliances with anti-semites because that's what's happened to the ex-Muslim movement that started with a noble goal of like destigmatizing uh, apostasy from Islam, which absolutely it should be. But then they found that they would get bigger platforms, more funding, and just more attention by aligning with right wingers and like rabid anti-Muslims. And so that's the path that the movement chose, unfortunately. Yeah, and, you know, if anything, there's a parallel there with sort of the mainstream of the Jewish community that has made common cause with, you know, the most virulent Islamophobes in North America, Mm. right? Um, You know, like, uh, I mean... Like Bill Maher. Right, like, yeah, like Bill Maher, who, yeah, is just such a fucking idiot. I mean, I I used to like Bill Maher, actually, when I was younger. Me too! Because he was... Like, has he gotten worse, or is it just that... No, I don't... Unfortunately, I don't think so. I think we just didn't see it. Yeah, I just think the the discourse has shifted so much that it's like, oh, yeah, Bill Maher is a reactionary dirtbag. Right. Like, if you look at his old, uh, like, stand-up, like, from 20 years ago, like, he's spouting standard, like, MRA talking points. Like, oh, it's, like, so difficult to be a man now. Women have too much, you know... Like, feminism has ruined them, or whatever bullshit. But yeah, he sucks. Yeah, he sucks a lot. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was one of those things, like, with Jesse Brown, where I was like, yeah, I know he's, like, bad on Israel stuff, but whatever. I find him funny. Uh, you know, he supported Ralph Nader in 2000. But, yeah, he's really not funny um, at all. <laughs> and, it, like, he's, like, cartoonishly unfunny. Like, it's funny how unfunny he is. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, I actually remember watching real time for the first time in years when the pandemic first started and so he's doing it without oh, an audience and it was yeah. actually amazing just to see how unfunny he is like when he doesn't have an audience that's like instructed to laugh and... laugh <laughs> yeah yeah i think you'll appreciate this is that with the new eight because i went through a new atheist weirdly around the time i was starting to read chomsky i i, I was getting into like dawkins and hitchens oh and they hate him so that's well, interesting hitchens that's the thing because i like i i started reading hitchens and i started reading his old work in, in, in seeing a clear difference between, like, even if you watch his old media, like, there's an old debate you can see on YouTube of yeah. uh, Hitchens and Edward Said uh, debating mm. Bernard Lewis and Leon Wiesleiter about anti Arab racism in the media. And so there's Hitchens saying essentially that Islamophobia, which wasn't called that at the time, is real in that it's bad. And, um, yeah, his, just, his entire demeanor changed, and I think that has a lot to do with, uh, you know, uh, drinking. But, yeah, weirdly, I mean, I guess because I was a teenager, so I was just exploring all these different perspectives that were, like, different from, like, what I was raised in. Not that the household I was raised in was, like, particularly religious, although mm -hmm. I did go to a Jewish day school that was... No, it was non-denominational. Like there were like the ultra-orthodox kids who were like weird and 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 we didn't like really <laughs> socialize with. And then there were the more like regular because it was more of a cultural thing too, right? Right. To, right. Like, but I, I got into the atheist stuff, and it was Sam Harris really that made me realize that the whole thing was total fraud because he's just like <laughs> I remember taking his book out of the library and it had this enthusiastic blurb from Alan Dershowitz. Um, oh God. <laughs> And 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 realizing that this was just like a front for like neoconservatism, and then like sort of really getting into the evolution of Christopher Hitchens' uh, work mm. because you read his stuff from the eighties and nineties, mm -hmm. it still slaps. Um, mm. I, you know, I mean, some things maybe haven't aged so well. Like he had some like you know contrarian takes, but it was like he, he was like Alexander Coburn, right? Like they they shared like column space at the Nation, and then you know Hitchens did sort of a, a Greenwald pivot. I guess you could say, mm. but as Greenwald is quick to point out that, uh, like, on foreign policy, Greenwald's, um, he's not bad. Like, it's very, like, you know, uh, isolationist. But, like, like, his occasional takes just cannot, like, redeem how horrendous he is. Yeah. On everything else. And you were also early to, to I, I think you're a really good judge of character. Cause, uh, <laughs> Thank you. I, I remember, uh, like, a few years ago, listening to your interview with sam harris back when he would speak to you and right. you, were, you were talking and you were trying to mildly criticize sam harris and point yeah. out that yeah greenwald is a dick but and yeah he, you know he just wasn't having any of it um but it is very funny seeing greenwald uh now, when it comes to Palestine, just being like, wow, I can't believe all these right-wingers who said they're all about free speech 
art. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah I can't believe the libs of TikTok lady doesn't care about like, <laughs> free speech. Um, yeah. Fucking clown. But um, yeah, but with Harris is where I, I, I started to realize this connection really between the New Atheist Project and, and, and support for, you know, uh, U.S. imperialism. Right. And this childish view that, uh, well, Israelis are less religious than the Palestinians, therefore they're less wrong. <laughs> you know, which I don't even know if that's true. I mean, yeah, again, I the, religiosity has certainly grown in Israel. I mean, there's like a Haredi battalion in the IDF. Is that true? Yes, yes. Ooh. I saw a vice piece on it. So I cannot imagine like another country recruiting ultra, ultra religious people who think they're specifically on a holy war and our soldiers of God and bringing like religious scripture onto the battlefield and stuff. Like, how would that be viewed if like Saudi Arabia was doing it? Yeah. Or like, like we're fighting the Amalek. Like that to me, yeah. that is like clear that, I mean, either Israel is being driven uh, by religious fanaticism alone, like Islamic fundamentalists are, or, the adult view that neither of them are driven primarily by Islamic right. fundamentalism, or of course, <laughs> neither of them are driven by religious fanaticism right. in that they're using it as a yes. rhetorical device to exactly. justify something else. And um, there is uh, I, sorry, I know I'm all over the place here and I, I <laughs> Uh, apologize, but um, <laughs> did you read that Eric Levitt's takedown of Sam Harris? Um, I did the- read it, and I did not. I mean, I liked a lot of it, but I tried to talk to him about, like, because he was all, I, I I do like Harris, and he has this, like, very uh, ASMR voice, and I'm not, like, such a big critic of him, but I think on this issue, he's very bad, and I was in his comments saying, like, mm, dude, like, you can find better critics of Islam, like, Harris literally peddles the Great Replacement, and, uh, you know, his a- ASMR voice is doing, like, some pretty horrid extremism out there but he did not uh respond and then there was also the part where he's like oh you know i think harris talked about like one of our worst uh in pakistan attacks on a school it was like jihadists and they like you know bombed like i don't know hundred and something children i can't remember but it was a horrific horrific attack and he specifically talks about that attack and says well look this is how bad jihadists are they attacked a school in pakistan and they didn't have any reason to do it it's just their like jihadism and that's explicitly like untrue because they stated that it was like in retaliation for some like army response to terrorism or something that's why they attacked an army school yeah, and that, and that's you. Know, I think the the good point that that Levitz made, and I mean Levitz in in general, I find him very like wishy washy. Um, but I think he's mm-hmm. a good writer, and I think he, you know, he's like sincere. Is that he he's saying that Harris is saying, oh, we need to take uh, you know Hamas members at their word. Which, first of all, I've always thought, why? 
why should we do that? But not <laughs> white supremacists, yeah, okay? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're just exactly. trolling. But then Lovitz was uh, was like, okay, well, then if we're going to take Hamas leaders at their word, then let's not be selective about it and point it to all these statements uh, Hamas leaders have made talking about how they are resisting uh, occupation and that it is about the occupation. And uh, Did Harris ever respond to that? No, no, of course not. What is he going to say? I mean... Well, you're taking me out of context. You're (laughs) you're vile. um, Dishonest, bad faith. And yeah, you know, I, I mean, I don't... like. For me, when I was younger, the the atheist thing was was really appealing to me. Even as I sort of grew past this new atheist stuff, you know, I, I was still considered myself an atheist. But I think as I've grown older, I've realized that I think a lot of that anti-religious sentiment was a product of revulsion on my part from the the mm. things about that I was taught were, were central tenets of Judaism that I found mm-hmm. uh, unconscionable. And, 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 and I think in more recent years, I think part of it is because I lived in a small town for a while where there were, I, there were like five Jews in town. I knew all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no, right. There's no Jewish communal life to speak. Right. There, were more, there were more like Jews for Jesus weirdos in, 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 oh. in medicine hat than, than Jews. Wow. You've lived all over the place. Yeah. I mean, all over Alberta uh, and, uh, Toronto, you've lived here. That's true. Yeah. Well, actually I'm from Thornhill. Um, you know, fancy where many uh, Jewish people. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying Jews have a lot? Of money. Oh God, yeah, I know. I, I, yeah, I just I was like, oh fuck, why did I say that? <laughs> no, it, it's uh, I was I was actually hanging out. Uh, Avi Lewis uh, was in Edmonton uh, a couple of months ago for a conference. I uh, we both spoke at, and we were hanging out, and we kept doing that to like. Like, someone would say something about, like, the Israel lobby, and it's like, oh, you're saying Jews control <laughs> in, like, in a very uh, facetious way. Um, yeah. But, because, yeah, again, anything you say will be used against you unless it's right. like, I stand with Israel. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I guess that shouldn't inure us from being sensitive towards how we talk about these things, but it also shouldn't be... It shouldn't force us to tone ourselves down and, and, and not be clear-sighted about what's happening right now. Right, right. And I really appreciate your voice. Uh, and, you know, it's been great uh, to see your posts on Twitter. And just like, there's like a few content creators that, uh, you know, have been so great throughout this time. I think Majority Report has been so good. Oh, yeah. Um, they they have been very good, and I believe yeah, Matt Lack is a mutual uh, yeah friend of ours. He's been great too. Yeah, no, I mean there's there's few, but really some really good voices, and they have been very helpful to have. And Matt Lieb too. He started a podcast, and I've been listening to it. I think it's called like Bad. Hasbara or something. It's really good. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. I'll have to uh, I'll have to check that one out. Also in Canada, Rachel Gilmore has been very good on this. Now that uh, yeah, she doesn't have to answer to uh, you know chorus a major media conglomerate mm-hmm. in in Canada. 
Canada that owns Global News, uh, where she used to work. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's been, I mean, a lot of cowardice uh, for sure. You know, that's never in short supply, but it, it has been good to see. Just the last thing I wanted to uh, mention before we wrap up is this other thing that you tweeted was like an Instagram compa- like a screenshot of comparisons from these two posts. It was actually the same post. Oh, was it the same post? Okay, they were together? It was the same, like, because, um, yeah, yeah, it was, like, part of a slide. Oh, God. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so, Yara Sachs, who is Israeli, and people in the replies uh, pointed that out, which I don't think is, in my view, appropriate, um, because it doesn't matter. It's, we're talking about policy here. But she was trying to reassure her constituents because she she represents actually Michael Levitt's old writing, which does have a lot of Jewish people. But as we have spent the past several hours discussing, Jewish people um, don't always see eye to eye on, on, on really anything, and that includes Israel. But she wants to reassure them that don't worry, we're um, the, the, we're letting people from Gaza in. But, um, anyways, sorry, I, I interrupted you. You were reading the post. So you're saying this is from the same post, the language that she is used. So she's an MP, right? She's uh... she's the minister of mental health and addictions. Okay, so. For Israelis currently in Canada, the government is exempting fees for applications for study or open work permits for immediate family members of a Canadian citizen or permanent resident provided they left Israel on or after October 7th and Israelis already in Canada who feel unsafe returning to the region currently. This will help ensure that Israelis who are already in Canada and Israeli family members of Canadians who came to Canada since October 7th have support in Canada during the war. War. And then the next slide is like Palestinian. I guess she's talking. She's talking about Palestinians. <laughs> Secondly, given the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Gaza, the government is supporting temporary residence visas for extended family members in Gaza who are related to Canadian citizens and permanent residents. This is a limited program. The security concerns are well understood and the security requirements are strict and follow reviews from Israeli authorities. There is an extensive vetting process and no security or admissibility requirements are being waived. If individuals are able to exit Gaza through the Rafah crossing, which requires both Israel and Egypt's cooperation, they will need to complete all Canadian admissibility and eligibility requirements before they can be approved to come to Canada. Now that's quite the difference in language for Israelis coming. It's like, oh, you know, if they feel unsafe, you know, we're waiving all these fees. And for Palestinians, like, we understand the security risks. They'll have to pass this and this and this. And it's like, wow, they're the ones that are being mass murdered right now. And it's just, it's really something to see. 
Right. And it's it, it's like, I mean, I think the way Israeli immigrants or Ukrainian immigrants are being treated is how all immigrants should be treated. But it's like, are there not Israelis with extremist sympathies that you may want to screen? Right. Or are there not Israeli war criminals who may be coming? Well, probably not because they're doing war crimes right now, but... They're busy. Uh, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's just they're criminalizing Palestinians before they even arrive and telling them that they're Inclusion is completely conditional, whereas Israelis are welcomed with open arms. And now I can actually tie this to my book and bring things full circle, because this is really the sort of immigration uh, policy that Jason Kenney really mastered when when uh, he was Minister of Citizenship in immigration of this, uh, what a uh, scholar, at, I believe, at Toronto Metropolitan University calls neoconservative multiculturalism, which is that, yeah, immigrants are welcome— you know, you're welcome to be part of Canada, but you have to fit in to the ideological framework that we're we're giving to you. And this, I mean, goes further than that because it assumes Israelis and Ukrainians do en masse and that Palestinians do not. But again, this is a very like disciplinary approach to immigration policy that was was really um, the signature achievement of the Harper conservatives and Jason Kenney mm. that Trudeau did nothing to uh, reverse and in fact is allowing it to evolve and take this form. Interestingly, they lay out pretty clearly how Israelis can sort of um, be set on the path to permanent residence. Um, But for Palestinians, it's just like, well, maybe if you behave yourself one day, um, (laughs) you can become a Canadian. Um, Of course, uh, I'm sure this year we'll be seeing the Israeli government heighten its efforts to actually get all these Western countries to accept Palestinian refugees so they can turn Gaza into like a beach resort. But, you know, it does remind, how how can you not be reminded of the fact that no one wanted to take Jews in when the the, the Nazis were trying to get rid of them? And um, what happened once there were no places who would take Jews in? Though, of course, I mean, the important difference is that Palestinian people would like to stay in Palestine of course, different Palestinian people think different things, but of course, the the, the purpose of the Palestinian national movement is to, to um, obtain self-determination in their homeland, not in some country that uh, supports their dispossession. Right. Um, so, you know, and I think that's a, that's a really tough case of mixed emotions that a lot of uh, Palestinian people have articulated um, as it becomes increasingly clear that Israel's goal is to destroy Gaza and, and, and remove the population. Yeah, I cannot imagine, like, what that must feel like and you feel like it's inevitable that you have to leave or they will destroy you. Like, it's just horrifying beyond belief. But, um, yeah, wow, this has been a great conversation. We've talked about so many deceptive ways of framing things and uh, distortions in the media and... 
uh, yeah, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Yeah, it was great. I, I, it's been great to finally uh, speak to you, you know, um, and exchange our voices rather than just, you know, DMing and right. liking tweets and stuff. Do you have anything else you want to plug? Where can people get your book? And You can purchase uh, my book, Kenyism, uh, Jason Kenny's Pursuit of Power, through the publisher, Dungeon Press. If you go to the book page, you can put in your postal code and it will connect you to your closest independent bookstore that you can order it to. It's also available on Amazon um, if you're so inclined, Barnes and Nobles if you're American, um, Chapters Indigo, but don't do that. Uh, <laughs> also, um, if you are interested in reading my thoughts on various issues, including the ones we discussed today, I have a newsletter on Substack called The Orchard. I'm uh, currently in a fundraising drive because Tucker Carlson is speaking in Edmonton near the end of the month, and I wanted to buy a ticket and go and cover it for the newsletter. So, but um, alternatively, you can also just sign up as a paid subscriber. I also co-host two podcasts, uh, Big Shiny Takes, which takes a, a satirical look at Canada's pundit class that we have uh, spent a lot of time today dismantling, and we sort of read through their worst columns and mock them mercilessly. Um, and then The Forgotten Corner, which is more of like an interview, sort of current affairs show. And yeah, I think that is uh, more than enough to plug. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to do that and for uh, having me on to talk to you today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support it, there are several ways you can do that. You can share it online, talk about what you just heard. You can leave a five-star review to help others find it too. And you can also subscribe via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No E in mangoes. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter before it's uh, completely wrecked, you'll find me at Nice Mangoes. Again, no E in mangoes. <laughs>